0: Today's reading will be taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. At the end of the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, good morning, everyone. Good morning? Good morning. All right. um, Let us pray. Lord, Father, bless now the words of my mouth. I pray that you place me behind the cross so that the gospel comes forth and the name of the Lord Jesus is proclaimed. All to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. All right, you're all welcome again, as um, Taiwo said. I have a question. I'll begin this with a question, and it's a very simple one. How did you learn how to pray? Just if you want to cast your mind back, think a little bit about it. How did you learn how to pray? If you're a Christian or you grew up in a Christian home, you probably learned by listening to others pray. That was perhaps the way that we would say was quite common for many of us until one day you decided to open your mouth and give your first public prayer. But all through the while, you were listening to others pray. Many I know, at least in my age range, learned to pray in university fellowship. So they left their homes, got into university, and then joined the fellowship. And then they started hearing people pray there, and that's how they learned how to pray. I grew up in a Christian home. In particular, I grew up with a Catholic background. So if you're familiar with Catholic prayers, you know that they are quite peculiar. So in a Catholic mass, for instance, which is the equivalent of a Sunday service, they have a segment called Prayer of the Faithful. And in my church at the time, the Prayer of the Faithful was perhaps the the best part for me because it was the shortest. (laughs) And it was basically something like this. Let us pray for those in mission. Lord, be with those in mission and help them to be able to fulfill what they have been called to do. Lord, hear our prayer. Amen. Amen. That was the end of the prayer. So you can imagine me coming with this kind of background and with this kind of understanding or with this way of learning how to pray where prayer didn't really, wasn't really expected to take a long time. I'll give you an experience I had in secondary school. In secondary school, I had the, I don't know whether I would say it's a fortunate or unfortunate experience of being a part of a secondary school fellowship. I think it was a good thing, but you know there were very many things that were negative about it. But anyway, and Very true to my nature, I decided to hide in the background. So when they were asking for people to volunteer for different leadership positions, I didn't want to volunteer. But unfortunately for us, we're not that that large. We're quite small. So they had to give me something. In the end, I fought and fought. And I ended up taking a role that I felt was very insignificant. So so you had the president. You had the vice president. Yes, they had the president. They had the president. They had the vice president. They had a secretary. Then they had the music uh, team lead. And then they had the assistant music team lead. That's where I came in, <laughs> all right? So I knew that there would be no need for me to ever, or I expected that there would never any opportunity for me to have any responsibility. And that's what I wanted. I just wanted to be in the background singing. That's really why I joined them. And then one faithful day, we normally have a fellowship and a prayer meetings. And then one faithful day, somehow we just aligned that all the people I just called were not around. And they said, oh, Francis, you are going to have to lead prayers today. <laughs> and I said, wait, 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 who is not around? Who is not, isn't um, um, this guy around? Why can't he take it? They're like, no, no, we're all going for something. And so you'll be the one that will lead prayers. I said, okay, if you want me to lead prayers, you know, it's to your own detriment. <laughs> and then I decided to start the prayers. By the time we finished, it was about probably about 40 minutes, you know, Considering that typically the prayer meetings we normally ha- held was about two hours. By 40 minutes, we were done. By the time we are done by 40 minutes, the, a lot of these people, the vice president and the president, they were coming back from where they went to. And they came back expecting that they would, you know, they would join the vibrant prayer session. And they were like, ah, what's happening? Why didn't you guys have prayers? I we are finished too. And they asked one other guy, ah, how was prayers today? And the guy said, no, these prayers was not very good today. The spirit was not there. you know." <laughs> I didn't really feel the spirit there. And came, they came and asked me, ah, but Francis, what happened? I said, ah, but we, we had the things to pray for. We prayed for them, and that was the end of it. Eventually, what happened was that these people ended up actually starting the prayers meeting again. You know? <laughs> and they had proper prayer meeting, which was lasted for one and a half hours. So, but that was the effect of my background. I, as far as I was, I knew it. It was... Pray for something. God. do this for us. And that was it. Pretty much, pretty much it. And that, was, that reflected in the kind of prayers that I offered even much, even um, up until um, my, later, my later years when I went to university and onwards. So one of the main things that, one of the main ways we learn how to pray is by listening to others, by our backgrounds and by um, hearing others pray. But another way that we also learn how to pray is by practice. You, would, you can listen all you like to people praying, but until you start to pray, you haven't really learned how to pray, isn't it? If you, I knew one guy when I was in Manchester that I spoke to him about swimming. I wanted to learn how to swim, and this guy was able to give me all the techniques. You know, cup your hand like this, you know, turn your head like this. He gave me all the techniques about how to swim. I didn't know that this guy could not swim, you know, but he was able to, he was able to explain everything properly until one day... We were supposed to go for an event, and he was like, oh, no, I can't swim. I was like, what do you mean you can't swim? (laughs) And he he was very technical in the way he was talking about swimming. So no matter how much um, um, theoretical knowledge about something you can acquire, you're not going to actually learn that thing until you actually start to practice that thing. So another way that we'll learn how to pray is by practice, by actually praying. But then there's one way that I want to talk about this morning. If we are talking about a people that need to reform their prayers or need, need a refreshing of their prayer lives, perhaps one of the most effective places to go to if you want to learn how to pray or if you want to reform your prayers is by going back to Scripture. Specifically, the prayers that we find in Scripture. God has provided for us in Scripture many, many prayers through which we can learn and reform our prayers. In this current series that we are handling here in City Church, which we have titled, Teach Us to Pray. We are going through some of the prayers of Paul. But there are many other prayers in Scripture that we can learn from as well. Prayers of Moses, prayers of Daniel, prayers of David, prayers of Hezekiah. The Psalms, for instance, we talked about that last week during our Q&A. As we go through these prayers, I will urge you that you go through them carefully, And as you go through them, let some questions ring in your mind. Why are these people praying for the things that... What are they actually praying for? Why are they praying for it? What is the background? What is the basis? What is the reason for them actually offering these prayers? The passage that Faye has just read for us this morning is another of Paul's prayers for the Ephesians. And because of what Paul prays for, I have titled this sermon, A Prayer for Power. To try and answer some of those questions like, what are they praying for? Why are they praying for it? We're going to look at this passage in four parts. We're going to go a little bit outside. I know we're going a little bit outside the norm here, but bear with me, right? Four parts. And after that, I will offer some concluding remarks. So I would say that these four parts are poorly titled. So again, bear with me, but four poorly titled sections. I will begin with the foundational premise, which I will call the Powerful Father, then the next parts two and three will talk about the actual petitions that Paul is actually praying for, a power for strength and power for love. And then the fourth part, fourth and final part will be the grounds or the basis for Paul's petitions. So a powerful father, petition for power for strength, a petition for power for love, and the grounds for asking for power. And then I'll offer some concluding remarks. All right, so let's, let's start with the first one. Asking from a powerful father, verses 14 and 15. So Paul says in verse 14 in Ephesians chapter 3 here that, For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, that phrase in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, is a little bit of a difficult phrase to actually interpret. Now, it could mean one of two things. It could mean that every notion of fatherhood, the father is kind of the central figure of family, isn't it? Every notion of fatherhood that you will find anywhere in the world derives its essence or its, its understanding or its true meaning from the ultimate father, which is God. It could mean that fatherhood, as we've come to understand it in our society, derives its ultimate essence or its ultimate notion from the ultimate father, which is God. Or it could mean that God is the father of everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, everyone who actually believes, both those that are on earth and those that are in heaven. Now, whichever one it actually means, I actually think it means the former, but whichever one it actually means, here is the one thing that is central to that, that God is the ultimate father, that God is the ultimate father. Sometimes when we approach prayers, there is a way and and manner in which we do it where God feels a little bit distant, where God feels like he's this powerful God. We know that he's the almighty God. We know that he's the one that can do everything and anything that we ask of him. But there is a distance that we feel that we don't really get that personal relationship with him. And this is what Jesus Christ tried to bring to our, our understanding when he preached in Matthew 6 and 7. And, his, and his, when his disciples asked them to teach them how to pray, he began by saying, our Father. And that is the relationship that has come to us by our believing in Jesus Christ. It is the doctrine that we refer to as adoption, whereby we are now joint heads with Jesus Christ. We are now sons. Now, let me, pause. let me pause here for a moment. Because I do feel that this understanding how God is a Father to us is very, very crucial to how we approach prayer. I do feel it's perhaps one of the most important things that, as Christians, we may have let slip by the wayside and affects the way that we actually offer God prayers. I am fortunate to have two experiences. Because I am now a parent, I have two experiences to be able to relate to this aspect of fatherhood. I have my own childhood, but also I have my own children. Now, my father, if for some of you that know, was a very strict father, Right? I'm not, I'm not talking about the way, you think, the way you're thinking about it. I'm talking about really strict, right? My father is the kind of father that if he comes to my school and he heard that the teacher flogged me, he would take me home and flog me. <laughs> so he was a very strict father. But, I, of course, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at the time, all the times that I was growing up because of his hard-handedness. But I owe a lot of, of who I am today to the way my father brought me up a lot of the positives that i can see in my life today i am 100% certain that it was because of my dad likewise my daughter she doesn't of course she doesn't care all she all she knows is i want something and the thing has to be there she's 3 years old my son just is going to turn 1 in a few months at that age it's remarkable what you can learn from them really because you watch them and they just she just wants something and she just says i want this she chooses whether she wants to eat or not it is time to eat your food i don't want to eat And at 10 o'clock in the night, I want to eat bread, you know? And as far as she's concerned, her parents have to provide that for her. So when you think about that and you think about the fact that as parents or as a father, even in my state as a human being, I have good desires towards my own children Regardless of how I affect, those, those, I affect that desire on them or not, whether there are errors there or not, but I have good intentions, I am always seeking to express those good intentions towards them. Jesus Christ says that, do you think that your Father in heaven, who is not even by, who you can't even compare yourself to, would, not, would deny good gifts to those that ask them? So the essence of what I'm trying to draw here is that the Father that we have in heaven, he, it's more personal than we think it is. If you think that your own father, when you ask him for something, when you ask him for bread, or you ask him for fish, would not give you stone or a snake, how much more your heavenly father? What Jesus Christ is saying to us there is that you have a father that in very many ways you can relate to just as your earthly father, but will do a lot much more than your earthly father. I dare say that this is foundational to the way we actually approach our prayers. You see, we are able to relate to God as a father because we have earthly fathers. So that when we pray for something and we don't get it exactly as we want, it's okay because our father may have denied us this one thing, but he has given us many, many things that far outweigh this one thing that we want. So this morning, as Paul approaches God with his petitions, he reminds himself and his readers that this God, who he says at the end of the passage, is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. This Almighty God is our Father. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In Matthew 7, he says, Brothers and sisters, if we are to reform our prayers, we must freshly understand our identity through Jesus Christ with our Father in heaven. A Father that is all-powerful, a Father that is almighty, but yet he is still a Father to us. And that is how we must approach him. We must approach him with the notion of the fact that he is our Father and that he is able to give us anything that we ask or imagine. So there is a reason for us to actually reflect on God as our father. And the more we continue to reflect on him, or the more we continue to reflect on the kind of God that has disclosed himself to us in scripture as our father, the more we will be able to know how to approach him in prayer. So when Paul says that for this reason I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name, he reminds the Ephesians that this father is able to relate to us on a personal level. On a personal note. Number two. Now we go into the petitions that Paul actually asks for. The petition for power for strength. Verses 16 and 17a. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what is Paul talking about here? Paul is praying that God will strengthen the Ephesians with power in their inner being. That is what he says, in their inner being. What does that mean? First of all, let's talk a little bit about power. A study of Paul's letters reveals how often he talks about power. For instance, last week, Dammy read Ephesians 1 for us. And he says, In verse 18 to 19, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And on and on, Paul talks a lot about this power that is given to us either through the Spirit of God or, or power that belongs to God that is available to us as people who believe. But take note of two things here in this passage in Ephesians. He says that, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit. So that the medium or the mediator through which this power is actually expended to us is through the spirit of God. But the sphere in which it operates is in something called the inner being or the inner man. Now that phrase, the inner being or the inner man, is actually quite... um, is, 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 is not uncommon to Paul. Paul actually uses this phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And there he says that, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, that is the same phrase, inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians is that the, the outer body that we have, this body that you see that is physical, is actually wasting away. I play basketball sometimes, And it is becoming increasingly obvious to me that I am not as young as I used to be before. (laughs) And funny enough, it's actually, there's a bit of a mental thing to it. So sometimes when you want to actually do something, the thing that you want to do is in your head. And you have almost already started to try to execute that thing with your body. And then you realize that your body is actually (laughs) lagging behind your brain (laughs) because your body can't actually execute it. So it is evident, you know, I have all kinds of pains all over my body. And I'm sure many of us would talk about those kinds of things. The things that you couldn't, you you are sure that you you never had any of these things when you were much younger. It is only evidence of the wasting away of our our outer body. Eventually, this outer body will do what? It will die away. It will continue to wither and wither and die away. At the end of that, what is left is what is actually being built inside of us. That is what Paul actually is seeking to actually build up. And so in, he says here that though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That is what we are actually seeking to build up as Christians, what is in the inner man. And so that is where Paul wants this power through the Spirit of God to actually operate in our inner man. Because that is what actually matters. The Bible says that what is seen is what? Temporary. But it is what is unseen that is permanent. But since Paul reminds us that what is seen, that is our bodies, is temporary, that means that what is happening to our inner beings, which is what is left when the outer is gone, is what we truly are. A lot of times when you see certain people that are perhaps getting on in their years, in some cases you see their true nature actually come out. And in some other cases you see them where... In some cases, you, you, you see people who are, because they, they are unable to do the things that they once were, used to do, they become a little bit bitter. And in some other cases, you see people that have built their character inwardly to the extent that as they grow older, they are much more caring. They are much more aware. They are the ones that give us wisdom when, we, when they speak. It is easy to put up a front with clothes, with makeup, with a smile. But we can't put up a front with the inner man. There is no makeup, or there is no shadowing, or there is no cloaking that we can do with it. There is only one thing we can do. We can either build it up and renew it, or we cannot. And we leave it to continue to wither away like our outer bodies. But apart from understanding where this power operates, we must ask an additional question. What purpose does this power have? So why is this power operating in our inner man? And typically, when we think about power, when we think about um, powerful people, for instance, what comes to the back of our minds is basically how we wield power, isn't it? How do you show that you're a powerful person, especially in society? You know, Power probably comes with, Money probably comes with the people you associate with, those people that can help you get things done. Power probably comes with how much authority you have over somebody else, isn't it? Either in the office, how many people are under you? How many people do you supervise? How are you able to order people around? Literally, that is some of the things that come to our mind when we think about powerful people. Even in Christian circles, sometimes we want power to for people to think that we are powerful Christians. Oh, I know that guy is a, a powerful Christian. It's not so much about what the power does but how we are perceived by other people. It is being seen as powerful that we want. Sometimes, it's the, somebody made, was making a joke and said, in, in, in any small circle, people are able to show their own power. You know, in, If you go to a, to, to a park now, for instance, the area boys, they are able to wield their own power, isn't it? If you take an area boy that is not able to wield his power in a park but you take him to his house he is able to wield his own power in his house isn't it yeah. It is about how where you are able to wield power and how much you are able to show that power being wielded But that is not what this prayer is actually talking about There is a purpose for this power and Paul says is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith but you would say, we're already Christians, and we already have Christ. So what is Paul praying about here? Why is, why is Paul asking that Christ should dwell in us again? Well, the best way I can illustrate this is with an illustration that I, I, I heard Don Carson give on this thing. And this is what he says. Imagine a couple, a young couple that's uh, about to buy their... They just, you know, they've gathered the small money together, and they're about to buy their first house. And they move into this house. It's probably a small house, you know, maybe an old house that... Their money was able, the little money they had was able to afford. And the house is a little bit beat up, you know, it's old, it's got rusty uh, faucets, it's got an ugly-looking uh, wallpaper. But they look at it and they say, you know what, let's, let's move in first, you know, and we'll see what we can do, you know. And then over time, they start to change things, right? Over a few years, they replaced the old, the, 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 the ugly-looking wallpaper with a much nicer one they, depending on their budget, they replace one or two um, big ticket items, they try to convert one room somewhere to something else, they, you know, they try to make, basically what they are doing is they are trying to make that house more like themselves. So that at the end, they will look and say, you know what, I really like this place. It's, you know, or if they go out, they are going to say, I want to go home because it's a place they have created that, that is more attuned to them. And every person will probably have that sort of thing, even if you're renting a place. By the time you've lived there for a few years, you've made that place, what, more like you, isn't it? I think it's a very good illustration for this, for this purpose for which Paul is asking for power. Where he says, is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Basically, with time, as people try and make a place their own, their inhabiting of the place inevitably shapes that place. So also when Christ inhabits us, he shapes us to become more and more like him. Another way to put this is this. The power of God mediated to us through the Spirit of God will lead us to Christian maturity. That is exactly what it's all about. That as God or as Jesus Christ is dwelling in our hearts and he continues to shape us, make no mistake about it. When Jesus comes into us, when he comes into our hearts, he finds it in a horrible state of disrepair. And it takes time, and I dare say it takes power to be able to turn all those different pieces around into something that looks more and more like Christ. You see, when we pray, we pray with a sense of Urgency that is based on need. If we said here, for instance, that um, somebody is looking for a job, right? Please pray for the person, right? I dare say, yes, some of us will pray. Some of us will go back and pray. But if we said we know somebody that is dear to all of us, the person has just been diagnosed with cancer, there is a sense in which we are all going to gather and say, oh, let's pray, let us pray. Because we, in our minds, there is a sense of need of the person that has cancer that is, in our minds, a little bit higher than this person that wants a job. Until we begin to see our need, the need for us to grow in our inner mind, the need for us to grow spiritually more mature, as paramount in our lives or as paramount or more important to God, that is when we will be able to offer these kinds of prayers to God. Let me read one passage to you. It's a long passage, but I feel it is very necessary for me to read it out to you. It is from Colossians chapter 3, from verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Through Him. Amen. Amen. I dare say that this is the passage that Paul envisages when he spells out the changes, or when he says that he wants the power of God to actually operate in our inner being. Think about all the elements of the different things that I've read. How much do you desire these type of things in your life? How much do you actually pray for them? Number three, a petition for power for love. So Paul continues from verse 17 and he says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The second one, this second petition, is very much like the first one because it's also a petition for power. The purpose of the power this time is actually quite clear. It is for us, is to enable us to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. This is not a prayer for us to love God more or to love Christ more. It is not even a prayer for God or for Christ to love us more. I mean, could he love us any more than what he has already done? But it is for us, a prayer for us to grasp the love of God. That word there, grasp, some other translations render it as comprehend. It is a word there that is, it, it's a Greek word that is actually in its present continuous form, which means it, there is a continuous notion of that verb, which means basically to be grasping or to be comprehending. And it, I dare say that it is beyond an intellectual thing. So sometimes when we look at it, we, I think it's just. Or be able to articulate the love of God in the many ways that we see it in Scripture. But it is more than that. There is a lot to do with experience here. There is a lot to do with how we actually experience God's love. To the point that we were able to say, you know what? I get it. I get this thing about God's love. And Paul uses many ways to be able to describe this, the way he wants this part to be reflected in our lives. So he's not saying, for instance, that we don't have the love of God at the first instance, especially if we are Christians. In fact, he actually establishes it. He says that we are already rooted and established in love. That's what he says in 17b. If you read Ephesians 1, 3-6, he makes that point again. And he says that we have the love of Christ. So this is beyond just a techno- an intellectual ascent of Christ's love. If we, it comes to a point whereby if we have this experience of God's love, of Christ's love, we are able to relate to it more. And its effect in our lives is a lot more than we think it actually is. So let me, let me, let me paint it this way for you. How do we measure love? I know I love my wife, and I know my wife loves me. But I don't know who loves who more. If I say I have 40 buckets of love or three stadia of love, what does my wife have? Maybe two and a half? <laughs> but the point is that when you talk about love, especially when you talk about the love of God, it is actually not something that is quantifiable. But it is more than that. It is not something that is quantifiable. But it is not also something that you can limit to just in knowledge alone and so Paul uses two things here he uses a metaphor which is linear and he uses a paradox which is which i consider even more remarkable he says we may have the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of christ that is the metaphor and that you may be feel and and, that you, and for you to know this love that surpasses knowledge it is basically a love that is beyond just knowing It is basically a love that is beyond an intellectual knowledge. It has something to do with the way you experience God. Of course, it includes knowledge, but it's beyond that. By this prayer or petition, Paul presupposes that apart from the power of God, Christians will have too little appreciation for the love of Christ. He's basically saying that we need the power of God to appreciate the boundlessness of Christ's love. That love that was a wonderful, rich, redemptive plan that God himself disclosed across the centuries according to his grace and then brought to fulfillment in the death, resurrection, and exaltation of his son. That is the expression of the love that we're talking about here. I dare say that sometimes we sing about this love more than we talk about it. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill and where the sky of parchment made? where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Call it whatever you want, the limitless or the boundlessness of the love of God, of, of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Paul wants us to actually appreciate this love to the extent that it does something inside of us. He wants us to know this love of Christ to the extent that it surpasses just a head knowledge. And he believes that it it requires God's power to do that. And so he prays for that. Let me say two quick things about the love of God. Number one, a genuine and deep perception of the love of Christ, such as described in Paul's petition, rarely comes to the person who is not spending much time in Scripture. A deep perception of the love of Christ rarely comes to the person who is not spending much time in Scripture. It is very, very important for us to be able to appreciate this love that God has for us, to appreciate how he has mediated that love through, us, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So perhaps one answer to this prayer is that God will give us or God will help us to spend more time in his word for us to really appreciate him and appreciate his love. Number two, Such deep perception of Christ's love is often triggered by suffering or tragedy. I watch my wife and my daughter whenever my daughter is ill. And it is then that you see a display of love that a mother has for a child. Both from the mother herself and from the child. You see the worry on my wife's face. You see the fact that she's worried about making sure that my my daughter becomes well. But at the same time, you see that my daughter is always clinging to her mom. She appreciates the kind of love and affection she is getting, even in her, in her suffering at the time. Sometimes, it is when we suffer, when we go through trying times, in the loss of a loved one, or sidelined by chronic illness, it is at these times that we are compelled to pause and reflect on the love of God for sinners such as you and me. There is one more thing that Paul says here in verse 19b. He wants us to receive power to comprehend the boundlessness of Christ's love so that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. To put it simply, so that we might be mature, so that we might grow spiritually. To be all that God wants you to be. To be all that God hopes that you will be. To be all that you should hope to be. God has already said to to us, be perfect as what? I am perfect. Be holy as what? I am holy. The remarkable implication here is that Paul assumes that we cannot be as spiritually mature as we ought to be unless we receive power from God to grasp the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ. It is not necessarily our theology or education or years of experience that makes us mature. Experiencing the love of Christ is a necessary ingredient. And we know it in our society here, don't we? There are many research articles to explain to us how children who don't grow up in loved homes, or in homes that, where, where, where parents actually are able to bring them up in disciplined love, turn out in a bad way in their adult, in their adult lives, as compared to children who actually grow up in much-loving homes. But I dare say that perhaps the biggest effect of understanding this love of God is what it does to us as Christians. The primary thing is that we get to love more. Forgiving somebody will not be difficult. Getting, being concerned for your brother, being concerned for the lives of people around you would, not, would come as second nature. Why? Because you know a Savior that has given you so much love. Because you know a Savior that has forgiven you much. Number four, the grounds or the basis for asking for power. The grounds are the basis for asking for power. Sometimes when I pray, I find that my mind often wanders. I'm sure some of you would have this experience as well. It goes something like this. I start praying for my mother, and I say, Oh, dear Lord, please be with my mother. Help her to um, be strong, especially in our old age. If she's ill, I remember that she's ill. And then my mind kind of just goes back to my mother's house, you know, and I'm thinking about <laughs> driving in through the gate, and seeing my mother, who i am be hoping to see her looking not ill, which would mean that she will probably prepare a meal <laughs> and that I will be able to sit down and have something to eat. <laughs> and then after about five, ten minutes, I just say, oh, and father... Please, please help my father as well. You know, So I've taken a journey down memory lane and I've reminded myself of some of the things that I indulge in. Well, if that's ha- ever happened to you, if it's ever happened to you, be of good cheer. <laughs> you are in great company. <laughs> I think it's the same thing that happened to Paul <laughs> in this passage. I'll tell you why. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I knew before the father, but you know what happened? In Ephesians chapter three, verse one, he says, "For this reason," and then he goes into a long talk about how he is an apostle and the kind of things he brings to the Ephesians. And then he goes back to fourteen and he says, "For this reason." So he kind of did the same thing that I did, you know, and then he came back. That means if we are to understand what "for this reason" is, we have to go back to beyond Ephesians chapter three, verse one, which is Ephesians chapter one, chapters one and chapters two. So I'm not going to expand on those two chapters here, but I will give you a very quick summary. So in Ephesians chapter 1, for instance, Paul praises God for his sovereign grace in granting redemption and its associated blessings to lost souls, Jews and Gentiles alike, through the work of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. He thanks God. This is the prayer that um, um, Damien looked at last week. He thanks God specifically for the Gentile Ephesians and prays for their spiritual enlightenment and growth. Then in chapter 2, he reminds them of their former dead state in sin, And that they have been made alive in Christ. And that though there was some distinction between Jew and Gentile in the past, God has brought them together in unity into a new covenant, into a new family, into one new unit. Where all, without exception, have access to the Father. And chapter 2 concludes with this Yes, chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers When he asks for power for them to become more mature and he asks for power for them to experience more of the love of God. This is for this reason. What does this mean? One clear reason we are able to glean from this is that God's declared purpose in creating this new community of believers is to bring the people in it to a kind of spiritual maturity. That is what we just read in 1922. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, he's talking, he's talking to, the Ephesians, to the Ephesians now, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So basically, what Paul is doing here, he's saying is that I am actually offering these petitions that I'm asking because it is in accordance with the purpose of God. This is actually what God wants, and so that is the reason why I'm actually offering these prayers to God. Now, this is very remarkable. It is because he knows what God has done for us and what God expects of us as a result of what he has done for us. What he has done for us is that by sending his son to die on the cross and by resurrecting him and glorifying him, he has created a way in which both Jew and Gentile, by Gentiles that includes us, can now come into the family of God. But that's not the end of the story. The story continues because what God wants is to build these people that have come together into one unit that would bring glory to him. And Paul is saying that because of this, I pray that you will receive power from God through the Spirit of God for you to be able to know what is the love of God, for you to know the limitless boundlessness of, Christ, of God's love in Christ Jesus. The point that is very clear here is that It is very easy for us to think about Femi's big toe and ask God to heal his big toe. It is very easy for us to relate to the physical things that actually affect us and focus on that during our prayers. It is human, I dare say, for us to do that. But If we are to reform our prayers, we must think more and more about what we are 100% confident or sure is God's purpose for us. And that is what we must pray for more. Paul knows what the purpose of God is. He knows what the will of God is. And that is what he prays according to. As we continue to grow, we learn quite quickly that God is more interested in our holiness than our comfort. He is more delighted in the integrity and purity of his church than in the material well-being of its members. He is more interested in the godly character of the pastor than he is is in his success. He shows himself more clearly to men and women who enjoy him and obey him than to men and women whose horizons revolve around good jobs. These essential values of the gospel must shape our praying just as they shape Paul's. Let me offer some final concluding remarks very quickly. There is a doxology at the end of this prayer in verses, at the end of the verses in verses 21 and 22. Basically, doxology just means a word of praise. And Paul reminds his readers that the God whom he petitions, the God who is our Father, is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Think about that for a moment. Our Father is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. That is a wonderful thing. It doesn't matter how daunting a task you think it is. There are no degrees of difficulty with our God. You can never think that God is less than this. Understand that it is not just God being powerful, it is also the fact that God is generous. He's extremely generous. If you can think of God in this way, then that thought in itself is a call to prayer. Number two, it is very possible to ask for good things for bad reasons. We may ask for the power of God to operate in our lives, or we may ask for the power to comprehend the limitless dimensions of the love of God, yet we could distort these good requests by believing that the sum total is only about our self-improvement. Paul helps us to put this in perspective in verse 21. To him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations. Everything is done to the glory of God. God must become so central to our thoughts and pursuits so that we long for answers to our prayers that bring glory to God. Number three, if you're struggling to pray, that is, you look back and you're disappointed that you don't pray as often as you ought, let me offer one piece of advice. Whenever you think like that, just pray. Ask God to give you power in your inner being, even to pray well. The worst thing you can do at this point in time is to just give up. Number four, I believe that prayerlessness is often an index to our ignorance of God. We need to reflect more and more on God, especially as disclosed in Scripture, if we are to reform our prayer. Finally, number five. Dami last week asked us to pray the prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 for a while. He said a few months or something like that. Let me put it another way. It is okay to pray for your job or success in your business. It is okay to pray for health or for you to actually gain more in some endeavor or the other. But if you never pray that God strengthens you with power in your inner being, if you never pray that God grants you to live in harmony with one another like in Romans 15, if you never pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, be fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work like in Colossians chapter 1, if you never pray for enlightenment so that you may know what is the hope of his glory like in James 4, then there is something missing in your prayers. Perhaps it is akin to James's description of us praying amiss. Surely the most important things to pray for are the important things. Let us pray. Our Father. We confess that we have not been faithful with prayer. Often not praying as we ought to, but often not praying according to your will. We remember the disciples who asked Jesus to teach them. We ask you, O Lord, this morning to teach us to pray. We ask you to reform us, O Lord, from the inside so that we become people of prayer. And so we ask you, O Lord, for power to strengthen our inner man so that we are increasingly spiritually mature. We ask you, O Lord, to give us power to grasp the limitless dimensions of your love for us in Christ Jesus. All praise and glory to you, O Lord and Father, who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. In Jesus' name we pray.